Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. I don't know if we're walking or flying, but either one is okay with me. We're going to see a lot. Earlier in the week, Trump reportedly dismissed his trip to the border city of McAllen, Texas, as a photo op that he was doing only because his team advised him to. Certainly, this latest national press event isn't the first McAllen has hosted. In fact, the city of 140,000 has become something of a border backdrop for political fact-finding missions. On a surprise trip to McAllen, Texas, First Lady Melania Trump visited the front lines in her husband's battle over illegal immigration. In McAllen, Texas, a group of Democratic legislators visited several facilities that hold children. I was on the border this weekend down in McAllen. I sat down with the chief of the border patrol. Chaos on the southern border. We're here in McAllen, Texas, getting a first-hand look at just how bad things have now deteriorated on the border. That was Sean Hannity visiting with then-Governor Rick Perry in 2014 when McAllen first entered the national consciousness around immigration. It was then that nearly 70,000 unaccompanied children were apprehended at the border, a 77% increase over 2013. Most of the crossings were in the Rio Grande Valley, so it put McAllen on the map as detention facilities overflowed. I look at those images and they are very disturbing. Then Secretary of Homeland Security Jay Johnson. One of the things that's remarkable about McAllen, Texas, which is sort of at the center of all of this, the community there has been remarkable. Rick Perry and other Republicans called on President Obama to go see the horrors for himself. He declined. There's nothing that is taking place down there that I am not intimately aware of and briefed on. This isn't theater. This is a problem. Uh, I'm not interested in photo ops. I'm interested in solving a problem. In the intervening years, and notably last summer when Trump's zero-tolerance policy was used to separate children from their parents, McAllen has seen plenty of political visitors. Lorenzo Sasueta Castro covers immigration for the Monitor newspaper in McAllen. He says that at this point, whether it's Trump or Congressman Beto O'Rourke, there's a pattern to these border tours. For example the obligatory stop at the Border Patrol station. From there, they're usually taken to somewhere along the river, so a levee area, and then Anzaldúa Park, which butts up against the river. Most Republican politicians will get that or a tour to the river itself where they'll jump on a boat with the big guns. Look at this boat behind me. It's well-armed. Yeah. It is, and I, I was asking some of the guys if, if they've had to fire or have been fired upon you need to have this type of deterrent because the last thing you want to be is outgunned by the drug cartel. They'll go out on the river and have Border Patrol point out spots to them. Where some undocumented people are entering the country, not through an official point of entry. Yeah, this is a common tour that someone like Senator Ted Cruz will take. Those are the types of tours that Democrats stay away from. They will do the tour with Border Patrol where they're along the fencing area, that kind of thing. That's pretty standard. What you do see from Democrats specifically is people going over to the respite center. Rather than go on the typical boat ride with Border Patrol and state troopers, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi visited the respite center in McAllen, where Sister Norma Pimentel and dozens of volunteers have welcomed more than 70,000 immigrant families since 2014. Any person that was in the detention center the few days before and processed, 
They go over to the respite center. They get dropped off by Border Patrol. There they get a shower, change of clothes, food, and they get to reach out to relatives, friends, and try to set up a plan to their next destination. They could have anywhere from 20 people a day to 500. Wow. There's two new centers that opened up this year, but mm-hmm. before it was just one. I've been to the respite center many times over the course of my time here. And speaking with people who are at the respite center temporarily, first thing they'll say is we were treated like dogs in the other place. And now here we feel like people again. And they're referring to being in the detention center for the couple of days that they are being processed. Are we talking about the detention facility called Ursula, which is the largest in the country? Correct. Ursula is the detention facility that most of the people that are coming through this sector stay at or are processed through. How would you contrast Ursula with the respite center? Oh, night and day. There's no comparison. These people are undocumented. These people have already been given a court date for their illegal entry charge, the misdemeanor. They are so grateful for the help that they're getting. A lot of them volunteer to help out other people who arrived that day. Obviously, they empathize with what they're going through. So there's a lot of communal feeling. Are there any especially scenic stretches of border wall in McAllen that Trump stood in front of in this photo op or might have stood in front of? Uh, No, he didn't do that. There are areas that have fencing. And are we talking about big, beautiful concrete or big, beautiful metal? Well, it's both. Um, I think that's another one of those things about semantics with the construction and what the administration wants. You have about 10 feet of concrete, and then on top of that, you have the slabs of steel that go inside that concrete to fortify that barrier. The construction you're talking about isn't specifically related to the president's current proposal for the border wall that has closed down the government because there seems to be funding for it already. Correct. Uh, That funding was approved in March, funded 25 miles of levee wall construction here in Hidalgo County. Do you think you needed that as someone who covers this issue down there? No, if you talk to locals here, you know, the majority will tell you that we don't need more and we didn't need the ones that were built back in late 2000s. A lot of it that was constructed tore through some of the natural landscapes that we have here that people used to use as hiking trails. What you see is, especially in Hidalgo, right along the border, there's border wall there and now you have atrophied landscapes. So it used to be a refuge where people could walk, but now because of the wall, people don't go back there. The Democratic mayor of McAllen, Jim Darling, said it's the safest city in Texas. The depiction is the 500 people that we're getting are illegal aliens. And technically, um, when we get them, they're legal because they're waiting a hearing. So Mm -hmm. I hate to use the word crisis on the border. He may be referring to the idea that we've had the same kind of flow for a long time. This isn't anything new for the people that live here. It's the seventh safest city in the country. I was covering the coverage from New York, and apparently one of the movie theaters in McAllen put that statistic up on its marquee. You think the president might have seen it? Did it surprise you that it was there? It didn't surprise me because every time we do have politicians come down here as a community, we do try to point that out, that there are no gunfights on the streets here. There is no spillover cartel violence I think earlier this year, it was a city of McAllen Police Department released a stat that said that this is a 30-year low in crime. So it's a source of pride for a lot of us to say, I've never felt unsafe here in this city. I think the community witnessed for the last four and a half, five years what it is that we're actually dealing with. 
And that is, we have desperate people coming from Central America. They're coming here and they're not a burden on the city. They're not coming here to harm us. And the citizens feel that way. Do they embrace them? I think so. I think it's evident in how much support the respite center has gotten by the community. Mm. I mean, a lot of the people who are working there are volunteers, and they have been since 2014. They understand what the national rhetoric is versus the reality of this place. And, you know, Darlene, you've mentioned as a Democrat, but you don't get that feeling. There isn't a lot of partisan politics when it comes to the, the local politicians here. I never really even thought of him as a Democratic mayor. Um, <laughs> he's been very pragmatic in the way that he deals with these kinds of things when they come up. And I think the community really took heart to his message of, we need to help these people who are arriving and have nowhere to go. So to the extent that there is a crisis in McAllen, it's at the detention centers where children are kept in what uh, some have called subhuman conditions. These are centers operated by federal agencies, not by the town. The city itself, as you describe it, sounds welcoming, utopian, practically Canadian. <laughs> How close is McAllen to Mexico? Uh, I could get to the Progreso Bridge probably in 20 minutes. And if I may add that during the run-up to the midterms when we were losing our minds about a caravan coming here that we knew wasn't going to come, I went down to the bridge and I just hung out around 4 or 5 o'clock. And the amount of people that were going into Mexico from this side, from the U.S. side, to go see a dentist or a doctor, kids coming back from school, going back into Progreso, Mexico, to be back home with their families, the cars back and forth. This is a transnational community. This is every day. This is a weird stop if you're trying to make it look like there's a crisis on the border mm. because there's no evidence of that here. Lorenzo, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Lorenzo Zasueta Castro covers immigration for the Monitor newspaper in McAllen, Texas. Two days before Trump went to Texas and after a debate among the networks, which finally gave in to his request for a primetime slot, he addressed the nation from the Oval Office in presidential mode, fear-mongering about the border in tones brooding, bleak, and replete with baloney. Democratic leaders Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer served up an arid rebuttal as the networks gathered their fact-checkers for the Sisyphean task of addressing presidential falsehood. At the request of Democrats, it will be a steel barrier rather than a concrete wall. After fantasy, the wall will also be paid for indirectly by the great new trade deal we have made with Mexico. After phantasm, over the years, thousands of Americans have been brutally killed by those who illegally entered our country, and thousands more lives will be lost if we don't act right now. The Toronto Star's Washington bureau chief, Daniel Dale, has been fact-checking Trump since September 2016. This was a highly dishonest speech. You know, he said that Democrats had made a request for this barrier to be made out of steel. <laughs> That's something that he invented as a quasi-solution that no one ever asked for. He claimed falsely again that the new trade deal, the update to NAFTA, could possibly pay for the border wall. That's simply not how it works, even if the deal is eventually ratified, which it hasn't yet. Mm -hmm. The factualness of the claim that there is a crisis on the border, given that the number of illegal crossers is about a quarter of what it was about 20 years ago. 
there was a lot of dishonesty there. There is arguably a crisis on the border, but it's not the crisis the president describes. What is unprecedented right now is the number of families that are attempting to cross and legally claim asylum, crossing through legal ports of entry, simply presenting themselves to U.S. authorities and making an asylum claim. And that is not a number that can be addressed with a wall because, you know, a wall wouldn't stop these people from just walking over at legal crossings. You've noted that Trump made 78 false claims in the first week of 2019. How does that square with his general record so far? Well, it's above average, but lower than his peak right before the midterms. In the 31 days leading up to the midterms, by my count, he made 815 false claims. That's 26 per day. So this is just an explosion. And mm-hmm. so uh, 78 you know, is well above his 2017 average. It's even above his 2018 average. But compared to the midterm barrage, it's a little bit calmer. By your count, he's up over 4,200 false claims since his inauguration. By the Post, which tracks both false and misleading claims close to 6,500. Why do you think the president lied last night and hasn't ever stopped since he entered the political scene in 2015? Part of it is simply who he is at this point. He lied as a real estate man. He lied as a playboy celebrity, you know, as a TV entertainer. He lied as a candidate, and now he lies as a president. And then, to some extent, strategic, and I think particularly on immigration. Much of Trump's other lying is just him impromptu ad-libbing. But with immigration, what we see over and over is that the lying is written into the speech. So this is an administration strategy to deceive Hmm. people on this particular subject. You have acquired almost legendary status as a fact checker in chief among the Washington Press Corps. <laughs> That's very kind. I, honestly, the way I do it is that he repeats himself over and over. And so the first time, you know, I'll have to research it. I might not be able to point out immediately that he's not telling the truth. But, you know, the fifth time or the 10th time or literally the 75th time, you know, some of these claims he makes literally that many times. By that point, I know it. And... I guess you must now have an instinct for identifying when something just has to be wrong, like making up a non-existent phone call from the Boy Scouts of America or saying (laughs) that four presidents told him privately that they supported his wall. One of the telltale signs that Trump might be making something up is if he claims that someone called him or otherwise told him privately something that's helpful to him. So the Boy Scouts claim is actually similar to the president's claim from this past period. You know, Mm -hmm. he claimed, the head of the Boy Scouts called me to compliment my speech. Turns out that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Past presidents told me that they should have built a wall. So when he's making claims about conversations that nobody else heard, I'm very skeptical of those. He's done that with foreign leaders as well. Yeah, there was a supposed phone call from the president of Mexico that didn't turn out to be the case. He misdescribed phone calls with other foreign leaders. And so Mm -hmm. I think he sees sort of opportunity when he knows there are no witnesses. You seem to recognize lies like little melodies before you even pay attention to the content because of the way it sounds. One of the telltale signs is simply when he ad-libs during his speeches. The speeches that they write for Trump are often largely factual. But when he ad-libs and starts sounding like Trump again for a moment, that's often a telltale sign that he's about to lie. So how do we strike the balance between continuing to point out the falsehoods and becoming numb to them? I mean, some people suggest that given the volume 
of the president's BS, you need to triage, focus on only the lies that have an impact on the most people or pose the greatest threat to democracy, and leave out the countless little hypocrisies and exaggerations that he says whenever he's not looking at a monitor. What do you think? I think that's a reasonable argument, but I disagree. My argument is that a lot of the little lies are extremely revealing. All of us probably are not entirely honest 100% of the time, especially when we're on the defensive. But it's the people who are lying for no reason about little stuff who we really sort of question. And so when Trump is making stuff up for no reason, even if it doesn't have a big impact on policy debates, I think it often tells us something about who this president is. But haven't we already figured out his character? I mean, someone who lied about the number of floors that were in his towers or the square footage of the apartments, things eminently checkable. You wrote in the Washington Post that people will email you asking why you waste your time when the facts don't even matter anymore. I reject that suggestion. Of course, there's a constituency that loves Trump no matter what, that doesn't care even if he lies repeatedly. But I don't think that we need to be so obsessed with this group of the population that we consider them the only group. I think this stuff matters to tens of millions of people. You said that you've met Trump voters who insist that he's honest, and also Trump voters who say they like his lying because it bothers, quote, elites like you. But then there are Trump voters like Bruce Brown of rural Pennsylvania you wrote about, and I thought that was a really interesting story. This was a man who was an ardent Trump supporter, although he was critical of him on health care. He was a Medicaid recipient, so he didn't like what Trump was doing on Obamacare. But he loved Trump, and I interviewed him about health care. Then he messaged me on Twitter, where I found him afterwards, and said, I found your fact-checking. And I was like, oh, no, he's going to tell me I'm fake news. But instead, he said something like, I had no idea he lied this much. You know, I kind of had an idea that he wasn't (laughs) always honest, but I had no idea he was lying, you know, hundreds of times in a month. He said, I can't wait to show this to my friends and neighbors who also love Trump. I really feel, you know, taken advantage of. And so I, I asked him subsequently, just out of curiosity, like, where do you get your information about Trump? You know, he loves Rush Limbaugh, Mark Levin, other right-wing talk radio hosts. He loves Fox News. And so for a lot of people who consume media like that, they're just not hearing about the ways the president is distorting the truth. Hmm. And so it taught me, you know, if we can find a way to reach some of these people, they can be persuaded. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Daniel Dale is Washington correspondent for the Toronto Star. Coming up, Democrats use tactics to interfere in a high-profile Alabama election, straight out of the Russian hacker playbook. This is On the Media. So here's something I bet every On the Media listener can agree on. The narrative matters. The stories we tell ourselves about our past absolutely shape how we think about our future. And that's the focus of our new season of the United States of Anxiety, a podcast from WNYC Studios. I'm Kai Wright. Join me as I investigate the unfinished business of American history and learn how it shapes everything about the 2020 election. Get the United States of Anxiety on Apple Podcasts. This 
This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. In the past month, the hotly contested 2017 Alabama special election for U.S. Senate has risen from the news grave. According to the New York Times and others, the triumph of Democrat Doug Jones over arch-conservative Judge Roy Moore was sullied by online dirty tricks, not from Russians, but from American Democrats. With tactics borrowed from Russian interference in the last presidential campaign, a group called Project Birmingham used social media to falsely associate Moore with unpopular policies. In an election with more than a million votes cast, Jones beat him by fewer than 22,000 votes. Scott Shane, national security reporter for the New York Times, broke the story last month. We called him to bring us up to date. Scott, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on. There were two clandestine operations that took place in that race. Only one was actually called Project Birmingham. Would you tell me about it? Yes, so Project Birmingham was the effort of a small number of social media savvy Democrats. They wanted to try out what the Russians had done in the 2016 presidential election. And they went so far as to create a conservative Facebook page. They were contacted by a write-in candidate, and uh, they endorsed the write-in candidate, a conservative candidate, to draw support from Roy Moore. And it's not exactly certain how they did this, but they appear to have either created or bought a lot of Twitter accounts, some of them appearing to be Russian using Cyrillic letters, and set them up to follow the Twitter account of Roy Moore. And that actually led to some mainstream media coverage that suggested that somehow the Russians were supporting Roy Moore. Pretty unbelievable. Uh, Then there was a second operation, which was more devious still. Yeah, the second one was operated only in the last two weeks of the race. What they had decided to do was to play on a divide among Alabama Republicans between those who basically like to drink and those who think that alcohol is a tool of the devil. So they created a Facebook page called Dry Alabama that certainly appeared to be the work of sort of hardcore Baptists against alcohol, hoping business conservatives in Alabama who don't want to see the state ban alcohol would associate Roy Moore's candidacy with a sort of hardcore Christian approach and therefore either not turn out, not vote, or vote for the Democrat. So there was Dry Alabama, and then there was another page called Southern Caller, which essentially had the same message. They were posing as extreme religious conservatives who lived in Alabama, but most of these people were progressive Democrats who lived far from Alabama. We hear a lot these days about false flag operations, uh, mainly insane conspiracies floated by the likes of Alex Jones, and they're easily dismissed because they're moronic. But now there is this case in which Democrats, albeit in a tiny little operation, have been caught red-handed trying to influence a senatorial election with false flags. Have I overstated the case? You know, I wouldn't compare either of these operations to Alex Jones and InfoWars in terms of scale, but I had written a lot about what the Russians did in 2016, and I had thought about this question of would these same techniques 
appeal to dirty tricksters in American politics. The thing is, these operations can be carried out in a very secretive way. I learned about them both basically because insiders talk to me. If you don't have an insider who's going to tell you that, you would never know. So my suspicion is that this has been tried much more broadly, almost certainly on the Republican side and on the Democratic side. Both these operations happen to be Democrats. And I do think that that special Senate election in Alabama, because it came along, when you think about it, it was in December of 2017, the sort of exposure of the Russian operations on Facebook and Twitter and so on in 2016 took months really to come out. That took place in the summer and fall of 17. There were congressional hearings. So then December of 17, there's this very hard fought, very important Senate election. And I think that's maybe one reason why folks decided to use it as a testing ground. You mentioned that you'd studied the Russian interference. Uh, Indeed, you'd studied it and reported heavily on it. Another outfit that studied Russian interference was a digital consultancy called New Knowledge, which is one of the organizations that submitted a report to Congress about Russian interference. Weirdly, New Knowledge was part of this conspiracy. So New Knowledge, as you say, is a small cybersecurity company. And I've gotten mixed messages from the people at the company. Jonathan Morgan, the CEO in particular, initially he told me New Knowledge as a company had no role in the Birmingham Project, as it was called. Subsequently, he has said in public statements that, in fact, New Knowledge as a company did do this work. They have been so vocal against what the Russians did in 2016, to be caught doing it themselves is, I think, pretty devastating. Jonathan Morgan's excuse is it was a very small operation, and they really wanted to just run some tests and kind of understand the whole problem of social media fraud in politics better. But that doesn't sort very well with the written report which makes it very clear that the effort was designed to help Doug Jones win. This sounds to me like researching airport security by hijacking a plane. (laughs) It it doesn't sound like an entirely academic pursuit. You know, in talking to the people who were involved in both of these episodes, I've detected two competing theories. One is the Republicans are undoubtedly doing this And therefore, the Democrats have to do it too. But I also heard from people involved in these operations who had deeply mixed feelings, and certainly people outside who were quite horrified and fearful that we're really going to have a kind of race to the bottom with folks on both sides to make Facebook and Twitter into completely unreliable sources of political information. Well, certainly Democrats have lost some, if not all, moral authority on the subject of manipulated elections. And they've been playing the moral authority card through the entirety of the Mueller investigation. It seems to me that the political damage here is incalculable. But uh, try to calculate it. As you say, even though these are very small operations, 
total of 200,000 budget out of 51 million dollars spent on that Alabama Senate campaign. Once you do something like this one time, it's a label you're going to carry around forever. And even though this was not the official Jones campaign or any official Democratic element, they're all going to probably have to carry the burden and trying to not be hurt by it. If I were the Democratic National Committee, my very first move after issuing a pro forma statement of repugnance for this kind of conduct would be to take some portion of my 2020 war chest and to try to track down similar activities by elements of the GOP. If they do that, and I I assume they will, uh, do you expect them to have any luck? Or for that matter, do you expect your phone to ring with a similar kind of story from the uh, political opposition? If anyone listening to your show wants to get in touch, (laughs) just scott.shane at nytimes.com. You know, what this reminds me of somewhat is doping in sports, where if you're an athlete and you think your opponents, your competitors are going to be doping, the pressure's on you to use steroids or other drugs as well. But it's similar also in the sense that it's very difficult and a very technical issue to detect, to look at the Dry Alabama Facebook page and somehow deduce that it was a false flag created by people who undoubtedly, you know, are fond of drinking. It's just not evident from looking at it. So you have to get behind the scenes, probably either working closely with Facebook in that case, or somehow penetrating the operation getting somebody to talk. My guess is, based on talking to the folks who did these projects, that there were a bunch in the midterms. And hopefully we'll learn more about it and maybe draw some lessons on how you prevent it. Well, blood doping analogy well taken. Unfortunately, as a a voting American, I feel like the dope. (laughs) There have always been dirty tricksters going back many decades in American politics. But moving it on to Facebook and Twitter, Facebook in particular, where so many Americans get their news about politics, I will never again look at an American political page on Facebook without wondering, hey, you know, is this what it appears to be or is this done by the other side? Scott, thank you very much. Thank you, Bob. Scott Shane is a national security reporter for the New York Times. As the Times reported earlier this week, one participant in the dry Alabama effort was local progressive activist Matt Osborne. He told us that the deception and misrepresentation on his part was no big deal. (laughs) I would not say there was a whole lot of deception involved. The only deception was who we were. The material that we used was real. We weren't using fake news. We were using real links, things that people really say. But you were posing as dry Alabama supporters. This is classically a false flag, right? Yes. And that's the words that I used from the beginning, that this was a false flag operation. The idea for doing this came from studying what the Russians had done. A moment ago, you said there was only one deceptive aspect to the whole thing. 
that it wasn't fake news that you were using. It was real content misrepresenting only the nature of the people who were dispensing the content. You've said in other interviews that you didn't break any laws. Were there any red lines for you? There are red lines for me personally. I wasn't going to try and scam anyone out of a dollar. I wasn't going to use race baiting or anything like that. There were some edicts that came down from above. I don't know who the donors were, but I know that they did not want us to engage in any homophobia. They did not want us to, say, raffle off an AR-15 in order to get attention. I am not a lawyer, but there is no body of law, to my knowledge, that says you cannot misrepresent yourself. There is a standard at Facebook. They don't like you having a fake profile. They want your profile to be one profile that belongs to you and has a real name on it. But you can have any number of pages, and those pages can operate in any way you want. You don't get shut down just because you are pretending to be someone you're not as a page. Facebook was built for this. Facebook is a data-collecting organization that allows advertisers to target specific consumers. It's the perfect weapon for someone who wants to do this kind of campaign. Did it work? If you mean how much did we spend versus what did we accomplish, I would say that $100,000 for 3 million different people being targeted, that's actually really good numbers. It costs usually dollars per vote to get out the vote. We're talking now about pennies per vote. You know, my first order of business was to elect Doug Jones, but my second order of business was to have some data because we're having this conversation about whether these campaigns work and what kind of reach they have, but we're having it in the dark. We don't have any data. We just have political cliques that have their own point of view and what the narrative they want to be. In the absence of data, you're not going to be able to reach some kind of conclusion about regulation or laws. You've written that you believe that the law should protect voters from precisely the kind of tactics that you employed. You know, I've been writing about dark money nonprofits for years, and this is a problem. You have a shield of anonymity. So if we made it easier for citizens to know who is speaking to them, then it's fine if money is speech, as long as we are able to disclose who that speech is coming from. Who bankrolled it? Who's the financier? I do not have an answer as to who actually gave us the money. What was the name on the check you cashed to pay for your work? The check actually came from Beth Decker, who is listed in that New York Times article. And again, this is part of our problem. We have made it very easy to hide the money and the source of the money when we're talking about political advertising. So you've spent a good part of your career following the trail of dark money and advocating for transparency. Yes. And yet... There you are, the mastermind of this conspiracy of deception. How the hell do you square that circle? You know what? Sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. I'm not going to sit here and just let you kick me over and over again. I am no longer willing to play by a set of rules that have been designed with a double standard in mind. If someone in Alabama wants to cry and say, oh, I feel disenfranchised now. Well, this is the state that first required IDs of black voters and then shut down the DMVs in the majority black counties. So you tell me, you know, how terrible is it for you that you feel disenfranchised? You're saying that the ends justify the means. 
I am saying that we are never going to have this conversation. We are never going to have productive legislation or regulation until we actually face this. That was my objective in coming out with this, to make sure that people understood the problem. Well, let's just say that was your objective. And let's just say that we now do have more understanding of the problem. Have you given any thought about what effect this episode has on the trust for real news organizations, real advocacy groups, real political speech. Have you thought about the loss of moral authority as a result of this? What moral authority was I granted before? I've been denounced as a liar for years. I write about true things. I use facts. I use documentation. doesn't matter. I'm a liar. I'm a terrible, terrible liar. Well, see, it's not just rhetoric now. You're caught red-handed. In fact, you've confessed. Does that not do long-term damage to the very principles that you've been espousing for your entire political life? You tell me, what is in the balance? What is worse? Is it me doing a Facebook campaign that imitates these tactics and then showing you that this stuff actually can have an effect? Or is it massive disinformation efforts from Russia that swing a presidential election. We're doing this activity and it's not being regulated. It's not uh, under any kind of legal regimen at all. So you want me to say what the morality is of my doing that when it's happening all around me. You said that you fear we're in a race to the bottom. I think this conversation is evidence that we are absolutely in a race to the bottom. My question for you is, is this the bottom? No. I predict that in 2020, you will see lots of money come rushing in at the last weeks of the race. I think that you're going to see a movement towards dark money spending on digital campaigns in the closing days of the race. This is going to be the new normal. And until we take it seriously and talk about how big money and dark money affect our politics, it will continue to warp our politics. You asked me, you know, had I done something wrong? Well, there is something going wrong. It's going wrong on a massive scale. All I'm doing is showing you how it goes wrong. All right. Thank you very much for spending the time with us. All right. Thank you. Matt Osborne is a political activist based in Alabama. Coming up on the internet, no one knows you're a dog, or a bot, or a liar. But everyone feels kind of lied to, except the bots and maybe the dogs. This is On The Media. On The Media is supported by Indeed.com. Are you hiring? With Indeed, you can post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on your short list of qualified candidates using an online dashboard. Get started today at Indeed.com slash on the media. That's Indeed.com slash on the media. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. If campaign strategists see online fakery as a powerful weapon in the current realpolitik, they're not alone. All manner of prevaricators percolate inside the Internet. And a new warning from the DMV. The agency says that fake websites are charging customers bogus fees to complete 
a driver's license and ID card application online. 300 million non-human views a day are being generated by this massive botnet. They say that's also involved in this falsified documents of 571,904 real IP addresses. This is Shudu. She moves, blinks, has 124,000 Instagram followers, but she isn't real. Max Reed recently wrote an article for New York Magazine outlining the dimensions and the perils of an Internet filled with fakery. He argues that, in addition to fake people, the metrics are fake, the businesses are fake, the content is fake, and increasingly, even the users are fake. We know that about 60% of traffic on the Internet is human. Of the remainder, that's bots. And then there's this huge portion of bots that are pretending to be humans, saying, uh, hello, I am a user and I would like to see this advertisement and click on it, and then I'm going to walk away from here. Now, bots clicking on ads, who is that intended to fool? Well, it's the advertiser, an, presumably. You know, it, it helps to understand a little bit how advertising works online. So unlike in the old days where you might have gone directly to a magazine or a newspaper, you'll go to what's called an ad exchange. Google has a huge one. And Google will essentially hold a lightning fast auction across a huge number of websites that determines the appropriate price of the ad and where it's going to go. In order to fake a click on an ad, what do you have to do? You know, one way that people do this is they will send a bunch of scripts, essentially, that represent themselves as humans, and they will fake click on the ads, and then they'll go back to the advertisers, and they'll say, look, we got 10,000 clicks, you owe us however much money that we're charging. But an even more lucrative way to do it is to fake both the website and the user themselves. Advertisers are looking for premium content. They want to put their ads against respected publications like The Economist or like Vogue. So you create a site that looks like it's The Economist or Vogue, and then you send all of your fake users there, too. So essentially what you've done is you've created a kind of simulacrum of the Internet. You have a fake website. You have fake users visiting that fake website. They even do things like move a fake cursor because that's the kind of symbol to signal that they are real human beings. They'll even have fake social media accounts. So metrics, you wrote should be the most real thing on the Internet. They're countable, trackable, verifiable, and their existence undergirds the advertising business that drives our biggest social and search platforms. But no. Well, just this year, a bunch of advertisers actually sued Facebook because it turns out that Facebook has been misreporting a bunch of its metrics. There's no way to say, this is how many people are on, this is how many of those are real people, and this is how many are bots, this is what they're doing, and this is how it works. And it's even harder because Facebook has all that stuff sort of locked away in its own proprietary software and servers. So let's move on to the people. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about Lil McKella. Sure. Lil McKella is a Instagram influencer. They're essentially celebrities who are famous for posting on Instagram, and brands will pay a lot of money in some cases to have their products prominently displayed in these Instagram photos. Except that she is not a real person. She is a CGI creation. It's a real human body that models, and then this CGI face is pasted on top of her, and she is an enormous Instagram account who can make a fair amount of money selling sponsorship ads. I think this is a good time to introduce listeners to a new bit of vocabulary. Some of them may know what the singularity is. <laughs> That's when uh, the computers become self-aware or when we merge with the computers. <laughs> but you talk about another term called the inversion. 
So the inversion was a name that YouTube engineers gave to an event in 2013 when the site was under attack from fraudulent bot traffic. YouTube, like most platforms, has pretty sophisticated fraud detection systems, but those systems work by identifying real and fake traffic in part based on the percentages on the site. This attack was so large that it was brushing up against about 50% of the traffic. And the engineers were genuinely worried that their systems would start to regard real traffic as fake and fake traffic as real. How? Why? They work with machine learning. So they take samples of behavior and they can say the majority of our users act like this and the minority act like this. And so this minority is likely robots. So if the majority, at least on a given day is robot. The machines say, well, that's the legitimate traffic. That's the traffic that's supposed to be here. All these bots and all these silly humans who are trying to watch videos, we need to kick them off the service. When was the moment of the inversion? On YouTube itself, the inversion never quite happened. But for me, the inversion as a sort of metaphorical idea, I feel like I passed it this year. I am increasingly unable to tell the difference between the authentic and the inauthentic on the Internet. Sort of everything you look at and everything you come upon starts to feel shifty. It's a vertigo-inducing experience. You have also argued that the fakeness that we see today has also infected our politics. Our politics are fake. Now, it's acrimonious, it's vitriolic, but fake? Yeah. I think when we talk about sort of the ideal version of small-D democracy, we think of it as a place where people come together to hash out disagreements in a rational and informed way. And what that requires is that everybody operate in good faith and that we believe that everybody operate in good faith. The problem with this sense of fakeness that begins to infect everything you see online, especially as the internet becomes the kind of driving force behind the way we talk about politics and media coverage of it, is that we no longer are able to assume good faith on the part of our interlocutors. On the one hand, you have liberals accusing Trump supporters of being Russian bots, of quite literally not being real people. And on the other hand, you have conservatives accusing liberals of so-called virtue signaling, which is this idea that they don't actually believe the things they're saying. They're just trying to win some kind of social competition to be the most virtuous person. And would you agree that some of this feeling of inauthenticity comes from advances in our technology? I mean, the Photoshopification of the culture, and then you have this other technology, deep fakes? Yeah, this is a sort of at-home video faking application that a user of Reddit released in January of 2018 that allows you, if you have a sufficient library of photographs of somebody's face, to basically paste that face on top of the body of anybody in a video. What's scary to me is not that we're going to end up in a position where we're all believing fake videos, but that anybody can look at a video and say, that's fake, I don't have to believe it. And you wrote... Our politics have been inverted along with everything else, suffused with a Gnostic sense that we're being scammed and defrauded and lied to, but that a real truth still lurks somewhere. Sure. I mean, I think if you look on YouTube, which is a kind of haven for far-right radicalization, 
you'll notice that the terms in which people talk often involve this sense that there is a big lie that these YouTube vloggers are going to teach you the truth behind. They call it red pilling from the Matrix, which is mm-hmm. quite literally what we're talking about here, that there is a fake world. And if you take the red pill, you'll learn that feminism is a lie, that diversity is a scam. All these things are fake. And to me, this is just a reflection of the experience of being online, that you are constantly confronted with these worlds and ideas, these voices, these publications that you're not quite sure if they're real or if they're fake. And it can be incredibly corrosive to any sense of solidarity with other people. So the people are fake, the politics are fake, and you conclude that we ourselves are fake. As we spend all of our time on Facebook, on YouTube, on Google, on Twitter, we're spending a lot of time consuming and engaging with content that has been algorithmically pushed towards us based on things that we are clicking on or spending a lot of time looking at. And I think there's an argument that that is, in fact, what we want. You could say, yeah, because you spend a lot of time hate reading your rivals' posts on Facebook, that maybe that is, in fact, what you want to do. But I think most of us have a much more sophisticated sophisticated sense of what our desires are and what our humanity is. You mean a more sophisticated belief in what our desires are? Because the algorithms are based on our behavior. Sure. I think that most of us, when we describe ourselves, tend to think of ourselves as better people than maybe we always act. To me, this is emblematic of the entire experience of being online, that you spend a lot of time clicking on stuff that you don't really want to see, that you don't really want to look at, that oftentimes upsets you or makes you mad. It is true. Or ruins your day. And that these companies are manipulating and taking advantage of how difficult it is to turn off the lizard brain, how difficult it is to remove that from ourselves. I know. I know. I really don't want to know what that actor looked like as a child. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. (laughs) Exactly. And so at some point you realize maybe the person I am is not the person who is always clicking on what so-and-so looked like as a child. You've been sort of constructed into this fake algorithmic human being scrolling through garbage that gives you some endorphin push. What's gone from the internet you wrote isn't truth. But trust. Part of this isn't just about transparency and accountability of these big companies. It's also about a culture that prizes madcap growth at all costs. That kind of cultural change is going to be about giving back some regulatory power to the government and people in Silicon Valley and around the world not rewarding that kind of behavior anymore, not allowing it to enter our lives in this kind of way. What would motivate them to do that? (laughs) Well, I don't think anybody enjoys the Internet right now. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. Max, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Max Reed is a writer and editor at New York Magazine. His recent article is called, How Much of the Internet is Fake? Turns out, a lot of it, actually. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Michael Lowinger, Leah Fetter, John Hanrahan, and Asta Chattervedi. And our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Josh Hahn. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.